It's a wonderful privilege today to have with us Wayne Johnson, who is the uh, Canadian Director of Tear Fund Canada. Some of us may be familiar with the old name World Relief, which we are partnering with as a denomination in terms of relief and development around the world. Uh, the World Relief has changed its name to Tear Fund, and uh, we are partners with them as a denomination. As a matter of fact, our our Canadian uh, Executive Director, Kevin Schuler, is the chair of the board of Tear Fund. So we do have a, a partnership that extends beyond the ether. Um, so Wayne, why don't you come on up and uh, welcome with us today. As, uh, as if you've been around for a while, you realize we're, t we're actually doing a double offering today. We're taking it all at the same time. And so you can start thinking how you're going to give toward, toward our regular ministries, but then on top of that, give towards a special fund, um, a special project that Wayne will talk a little bit about during his teaching this morning. But Wayne, let me just pray for you before okay. we start. Lord, we thank you for the partnerships that we can have in bringing the name of Jesus and the power of the name of Jesus and the love of the name of Jesus around our world. We thank you for Tear Fund and the way they are bringing the name of Jesus in very concrete and practical ways and uniting your church in serving the, the least of these, where the need is greatest. And Father, uh, anoint him today as he presents to us the name of Jesus and the word of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Mel, and thank you so much. It's just a real pleasure to be here at Ellerslie and to see what God is doing among you. Um, it just gets exciting. I see you have a couple of child dedications today, a couple Nigerian kids in there just being blessed. They'll all be eating fufu and bushmeat soon. For those of you who don't know, the Nigerians, they love their fufu and bushmeat. It's a special uh, African meal that I have enjoyed many, many times. But I want to thank you. I know this is Thanksgiving and we thank to God, but I want to thank you. Uh, this picture in the back here, Two years ago, uh, a story was told to you as a congregation, you responded. You responded again last year. And I want to tell you a little bit about this picture if you don't know. South Sudan exploded in violence, conflict, drought. Um, March 15th, it made the news big time, 2017. Uh, millions were displaced. Three and a half million people from South Sudan left the country and went into Uganda and Kenya. People were fighting between the government side and the militia side. The government was led by the president, who was a Dinka man of one tribe. The vice president was Nuer man, and they fought against each other. Hundreds of thousands had died. Millions were displaced. And in the middle of it, what happened was drought came. And in the midst of that, we had famine. World Relief had been working in that region for something like 22 years. And God, in his providence, had been preparing something 20 years earlier. There was a main highway that went from Kenya up through South Sudan, up to Sudan towards Khartoum. And on this main side of the highway, we had built four clinics. Two turned out to be on the government side, and two turned out on the militia side and they decided not to fight each other, and the World Food Program came to us and said, would you distribute to hundreds and thousands of kids who have severe acute malnutrition, would you keep them alive? And this group of women, there's 34 of them lined up, each with their child, 
and they would bring their child in every week to be weighed. Weighed because a three-year-old child here in Canada typically weighs 30 to 35 pounds. We were seeing three-year-old children weighing 16 to 18 pounds. We were seeing babies coming in that had been born at nine pounds and they were coming in at five pounds. And the question was, how do we keep these children alive? And so over the course of um, a 12-week period, we would feed them something called Plumpy Nut. And up in the top corner, you see this little package. I don't have one here. It's just a small little package of peanut butter. Now, I think that sounds a little funny, and we would be afraid of allergies here, but no African child ends up having allergic to peanut butter. I don't know why. Fortified with micronutrients, sugar, and so on. It's 550 calories. And we would start the child at one a day until they hit... 22 pounds, and then two a day, and then three a day. We ended up screening 97,000 children. 11,000 of them were deemed to be on a regimen of these for eight to 12 weeks. But the United Nations told us that 4,000 of those children will probably die. Your church, your Sunday school, invested in this a number of years ago, and it made a major difference. We didn't see a single child die. And I just want to say thank you to you. So Thanksgiving Sunday, thank you to you. Now, the other part of the story is the brokenness here. Because I said to Michelle, who had taken the picture, one of my staff members, I said, tell me the story about these 34 women. She said, I'm glad you asked because I would have told you even if you didn't want to hear. There are 34 women. 25 of them have been raped in the last six months, and four of them are pregnant by rape. And in this region of two and a half or three million people, female rape or rape had been 72% of the population within the last six months. And so the question is, what is the response of a relief and development agency to go and help? See, we can help people keep alive, food, food services, water, sanitation, hygiene, those are typical, but what happens to the scars of the heart? There are 12 churches in that region. Seventh-day Adventist, Baptist, Pentecostal, Catholic, the whole range, and among them, as well as in the whole greater population, no one was running any kind of counseling service for these women. And so we got involved in trauma healing based on biblical principles, training the local church to respond to facilitate local Call them small groups, call them home Bible studies, call them counseling groups to work among the women. But it, and we're training at the moment about 600 women right now to be facilitators of small groups, but that's come out of something that Ellerslie Road started in caring for children. It's now, how do you respond to parents? And I want to say thank you for being part of that. Um, now, you didn't come to math class or to come to some kind of big graphs, but I'm going to show you one. And it's not typically the kind of thing you get in your typical Sunday morning servant service. The bars, starting from 1955, happens to be my birth year through till today, is the population of planet Earth. Under 3 billion people moving up to today, 7.7 .7 billion people. Population of planet Earth almost tripled over the last 60 years. 
The red line, what's the red line? Back in 1955, 80% of the population of planet Earth was living in what we call extreme poverty. Inflation adjusted, they're living on less than $2.50 per day per family. Trying to get along in the midst of brokenness. But world governments and NGOs started to really make an impact about 1980, and the rate started to drop significantly. And there's really good news. Good news in the world of development, in the world of the poor, in that only now, in 2019, just under 10% of the world's population are in extreme poverty. That is a great good news story. Countries such as Mexico, Malaysia, Thailand, uh, Brazil, South Africa, would have been living in extreme poverty now, but now they are getting better. But, here's the thing. People living in extreme poverty today, there's still just under a billion of them. A billion. Like 23 populations of Canada still living in extreme poverty, and the red line, which goes up to almost half, is those who are living under $4 a day per family. See, there's still poverty in a major, major way, but the world is changing, and God is using the church as a component of that. If you go to Africa, many of the hospitals, where, who were they started by? Mission agencies, water wells, services, they're being influenced by the church. And the church of the global south is expanding. It's exploding inside. But what I want to do in the middle of celebrating that God has been doing some wonderful things is there's still great problems. And I want to bring that to you. If we look at where the concentration of extreme poverty is, it's in Africa. 75% of the world's extreme poor are in Africa. And so I want to personalize that and bring that down to one lady. Her name is Amarash. Amarash is a lady I spent a day and a half with back in July, and I want to tell you about her story. But to understand her story, we also have to understand the context. Because this is a hard story, but it's also a good news story. See. Amrash has to walk three hours a day to get water. That's how far it is to go. So she takes her donkey, fills up her jerry cans, and off she goes to get water. And three hours later, she's back at home with her water. It's the normal life for people in her district of Ethiopia, south of Addis Ababa. Manual labor is everything. Everything is carried on the back of a donkey or the back of the human to get anywhere. I was in a church of 450 people, not a single person had a car, and six people had motorcycles. That was normal. And so life goes on in a different state of affairs. And whatever the reason for climate change that you look at, it's, it's changing. And as you talk to the poor, whether it's in Burkina Faso or Ethiopia or India or Malaysia, they will tell you the world's climate is changing. And when you used to have gentle rains in the spring and gentle rains in the fall, now what we're seeing is erratic or no rain and drought, 
followed by torrential downpours. And you see this massive change that's taking place where all of a sudden people are being impacted. Those two pictures I just showed were taken 30 miles apart, three weeks apart. <laughs> and they were just half an hour drive away from where Amoresh lives. And then what happens is over the years they've been taught farming methodology, till the soil, make it beautiful. Don't just till it once. Our farmers would tell you, if there are any farmers in the crowd, you till the land once, typically. They were taught by the government. They had a communist government from 73 to 93. You had to till the soil seven times so it was really fine and dusty. And then the wind would blow and it would blow the soil away. And then what would happen is the torrential rains coming with a changing climate, and now all of a sudden all the soil goes down into the river, and the Blue Nile, which goes through Ethiopia, is now the Brown Nile, and all of the soil of Ethiopia has now gone to Egypt, down the river. And so how do you farm that? And my friend Barakat, who leads our partner agency there, is standing in front of flat farmland 25 years ago. 25 years, erosion just took it away. So how do you farm in that when in Ethiopia there are very few flat plains, everything is on a slope, and you're trying to farm on the slope? And so how do you go and live in a life like that? My husband and I dropped out of school at a young age to get married. Since then, we have had seven children. Life here is a daily struggle for many. With one-acre farms and erratic rains, people here only eat one meal a day for seven months. I often feared for my family. The soil had become sandy and infertile. When we can't grow enough food, we are forced to buy it, but we can't afford much. Our children complain of their hunger. They became weak and irritable. We lived year after year like this, just surviving. But then I heard about something at church called conservation agriculture. When I first heard of this new farming method from my wife, I dismissed it. I didn't believe it could really work, but she insisted to give it a try and said she would do all the work. Then I got to work, digging the holes, mulching and planting. Many of my friends considered me a crazy woman. They would make jokes about me when I was doing this. But then came the harvest. When that year's harvest came, I couldn't believe it. We grew 151 kilograms of maize and 49 kilograms of pigeon pea, much more than we had grown in the past. From that point on, I was a believer. We have converted all our fields to conservation agriculture. Then I joined a self-help savings group that started at our church. The name of this group is Love, because without love, we are helpless. Before and after every meeting, we pray because God is the Alpha and Omega. The group has taught me how to save and given me access to loans from the group savings. By taking loans, I was able to start a coffee trading business. Thanks to Conservation Agriculture and the Savings Group, our life has been transformed. Our second year, we grew over 500 kilograms of pigeon pea and have also started selling beans, taro, coffee, peas and pumpkins. For the first time in our lives, we had product to sell in the market. It was a joyous celebration in our family. 
because of my coffee business, we were able to pay for one of our daughters to go to college to study English. My wife has been the backbone for me and our children. Throughout it all, she was encouraging. I am training 50 neighbors and my pastor and giving them seed. Our church has set up a model farm to train the community. All we have is a blessing from God. We learned to care for his creation and the land, and we enjoy God's blessing. My favorite verse is from Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does help come from? My help comes from the Lord. I never thought something so simple could change my life forever, but with God, anything is possible. You know, one of the difficulties we see here in this little video vignette of Amoresh and Mateo's life is that they had basic difficulty in eating. Seven months of the year, they would have one meal a day. Seven months a year. They didn't have enough money to send their children to school, but their children were as bright as you and I and our kids. They didn't have opportunity. Amoresh would have to go three hours to get water and back. And then she would worry about, do they have enough fodder to feed the donkey to keep the donkey alive, or were they going to have to sell their animals so that they'd have enough food to live? How do you make decisions like that? That's the harsh realities of living in extreme poverty, which is the situation of almost a billion people. What's going through God's heart when he hears that? and sees that. But you know, something happened that was pretty amazing. We at Tear Fund are committed not to give handouts, except in times of emergency like South Sudan, but our modus operandi is to train and facilitate the church to help them break out of poverty, to help the church facilitate the community to be transformed. And the church Leaders sat down with the leaders of our partner agency and did an assessment of what was going on in the community. Just like Pastor Mel did when he came to this church, he did an assessment of the community. What are the demographics? What's going on here? How does this church reach out beyond the walls? In the same way, the church did an assessment and they said, we have three problems. Number one, we're hungry. The whole community is hungry. Not just the evangelical church, but the Orthodox, the Muslims, we are hungry, and it is causing a major problem. Everybody is trying to live on little one-acre farms. Number two, there is no economic empowerment, especially for women. There's no electricity, there's no banking system, and if I, even if I could go to the bank, I don't even have an address, how do I reach into that? But the third problem that the church leaders identified is that we as the church have become very insular and we don't look beyond our walls. We take care of our own people. We do not respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, everything in it, 
and love your neighbor. What they realize is we have to reach out beyond our church to serve our community. That's what the gospel really is. This integral mission, this integrated mission of loving God and worship, but also loving our neighbor and expressing it. And they said, if we could solve that problem of economic empowerment, and if we could solve that problem of food, man, we could, if we ate better, everything would improve. We would have crops to sell and we would have money. We could pay school fees and make our, sure our children went to school. We could afford health care. We could, our housing could improve. We could buy animals. We could save for a rainy day. Businesses could improve. And we could actually be generous to our neighbors. And so they started a church-based community transformation project. They wanted to learn how can we take some better farming practices to change our food situation? How can we start to save? How can we diversify? And how can we help each other? And Amoresh and Mateo started this journey that God led them to, that led them to a metal roof for their home, more animals, crops to sell, starting a coffee trading business. It started because the church had said, yes, you can. There was an issue of spiritual hunger. We want to reach out to God, but that was, it's very hard to hear God when you're, it, you're overwhelmed by the grumbling of your stomach. It's a chronic need around the world, but it's also a chronic need here in beautiful downtown Edmonton. A spiritual hunger and a material hunger. Let's turn in our Bibles, if you've got one there, to Second or First Kings chapter 17. First Kings chapter 17 is a story in the scriptures that addresses this same issue of how do we help those in need, how do we respond to spiritual need and material need, and we're going to look at two questions here as we go. What is our responsibility to those in need? I want you to put that in the back of your head. And the second question, how can we best help? What's the best thing to do? And so the passage starts in 1 Kings chapter 17. The backstory to Elijah is that there have been about eight generations of bad kings. And as you read the chapters beforehand, Judah did evil in the eyes of, of the Lord. He committed all the sins of his father had done before him. There was continual warfare. Asa did what was right. Uh, sorry. Um, no, forget, no, Asa was the one, good one here. Nabah, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Basha, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So he died because of the sins he'd committed. Omri did evil in the sights of the Lord. Over and over and over again, and then it said, Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And then Elijah, the Tishbite, 17 verse 1, from Tishbite and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor 
reign for the next few years except at my word. And at the end of the book of James, it says that for three and a half years, there was drought in the land of Israel. Go down to verse 7. It says, sometime later, the brook dried up because there's been no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there because I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Now the interesting thing is, God was telling Elijah, I have a plan for you. There's going to be a widow that takes care of you. Don't you worry about this. But to get there, you have to go to Zarephath. Now the interesting thing was, where was Zarephath? Zarephath was not south towards Jerusalem. It was north up in Lebanon. He had to go up into the neighboring country to be in the home of this widow and be cared for. And it says, I've directed this widow to supply you with food. So Elijah obeyed. And it says he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the town gate, there was a widow gathering sticks, not logs, not firewood, but gathering sticks, just little sticks, what was left on the ground. He called her and said, would you please bring me a little, little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? Now this man was from out of, out of the area. She didn't know who he was, but she was generous and hospitable. And as she was going to get it and must have turned away from Elijah, walking away, all of a sudden Elijah says, and please... Bring me a piece of bread. He was hungry. He'd been walking. He'd been walking from Israel up to Lebanon, what we would call to Zarephath. And then she replies, As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. I only have a handful of flour in a jar. And I have a little bit of olive oil in the bottom of a jug. Handful of flour and just a wee little bit of olive oil left at the bottom. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. <laughs> no hope. The end of the road. The rope had come to the end and what was life looking like? And there was nothing there and crops weren't growing, and there was poverty, and it wasn't just her, it was the whole community. And where was hope? And where's the hope for the mother who's saying, I'm just gathering these sticks, and then I'm going to die, and my son will die. And so what is the responsibility that comes to us when we see people who are struggling in extreme poverty? And the interesting thing is in this passage... Elijah says, in verse 13, don't be afraid. You go home and do as you have said. But first, I want you to make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says, the jar of, the, jar of flour will not be used up 
and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain to this land. Do not be afraid. She says, there's going to be an answer. There's going to be a solution. I was trying to think, of, I was sitting there this morning, and I was trying to think, I wonder what that woman was thinking. <laughs> what was going through her mind right at that moment? What was going through her mind? I'm just collecting sticks to have my last fire, to cook my last loaf of bread, bake my last loaf of bread, and here's this man saying, don't be afraid, make one for me first, and then you feed yourself, and oh, by the way, your flower's not going to run out. What's going through her mind? Maybe hope? Maybe exhilaration? That's a little bit of doubting, some questioning? You know, the interesting thing is that when we have problems and when the, in the scriptures as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Revel, Genesis to Revelation, God seems to respond to the cry of the poor. I bet there was many, many nights that that woman was crying out to God, help, help, help. And we have a responsibility as the hands and feet of Jesus to also do that. Whether it's here in Edmonton through the mustard seed, whether it's reaching out to our neighbor, whether it's overseas, Jesus seems to have this deep sense that the problems of the poor are also shared with us. And our responsibility, whether we look at Genesis or Revelation or anywhere in between, seems to be to care for the poor. It is the expression of faith. James at the end of James says, this is what true religion is, to care for the widow and her children. When you go to James 2, verse 6, 7, 8, and James is asked as the brother of Jesus, what is the royal law? He says, the royal law is this, love your neighbor. He doesn't say it's love God. He just presumes that. He says, for you as Christians in the church, it is to love and reach out and express the love of God to our neighbor. It seems that God has this bias for the poor, a special concern for widows and orphans and immigrants. And the second question is, how do you care for them? It's interesting in this Old Testament passage, God does not give a handout to Elijah for Elijah to give to the woman. What God seems to do is says, what's in your hand? What resources do you have available now to change your own life? I'll be involved in that, but you have to take a step of faith to give that loaf of bread away, and in the midst, I'm going to come alongside you. It actually goes against everything that we think is sane and logical. It's in the midst of generosity that I will bless and so there's some fascinating insights in here. Elijah asks, will you give me food and water? Because God had already told Elijah the woman was going to take care of him. He already had that confidence in God. But what it took was a mindset change in the woman to say, no, I'm not going to hold on to this and hold on to it. I'm actually going to give away and with that little, the result is she fed herself and her family 
for another two or three years, we don't know the exact time, from a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, and she just kept making bread and bread and bread. And I don't understand that type of miracle that keeps taking over and over and over again. My wife, in the middle of the Zimbabwe crisis about eight years ago, was in Zimbabwe with Mennonite Central Committee, and as she was there, they were going to a feeding program that was the only source of food for the poor in this area. They were in Bulawayo Baptist Church, and as they went in, this little team of six people from our church went into the church. The pastor said, we only have enough food for 40 to 50 people. I don't know what we're going to do. We just need to pray that God would feed. And as the 332nd person went through the line before Nancy and her team and the pastor ate, the food ran out. They filled out the six of Nancy's team, the six people who were running this soup kitchen, the pastor, they filled up all the bowls and when they looked in the bottom, there was nothing left. I don't understand it. Nancy didn't understand it. She said it was real. How can God make six times as much, seven times as much food, and it keeps on multiplying? It happens, but God has said, you don't have, but you take steps of faith and move out. And so the question here is, what do you have? Elijah instructs her to make a small cake and says, let's go. And so this brings about a mindset change. And I want to go and take you into a little bit of a mindset change as we move beyond this, because in many ways, less is more. That's the principle. God seems to take less and make much more of it. What happened in Amoresh's church is they had this community discussion. What are the problems we have? What resources do we have? What do we need outsiders to help us with? And they said, we have land and we have hard work and we can get water, but we're not growing enough. How do we change our methodology? They said, we have women we want to save, but no one's ever taught us that we can save everything we get, we spend immediately. And so the church started to work through on what we call church-based community transformation. And they decided we're going to change our agriculture methods. And so we came in and taught them. And this is one of the elders of the church on the left side. Yeah, left side. Traditional farming. There what we've got. It's only coming up to a shoulder. It's harder to see, but the leaves have fall armyworm getting into them. They're yellow on the edges. The other picture I took was 15 feet away. There was a pathway in between. And he's moved. That was conservation agriculture, a new method of how do you farm in an area of high erosion, poor soil fertility, and limited rain. And all we did was we taught them to do planting stations, no-till. Basically, I know you're not all farmers here, but the idea was instead of tilling all the soil, just cut a shoebox into the ground. Take a handful of ash from the fire, take a handful of dung from chickens, goats, human, whatever you've got, mix it in there, put some mulch in there and mix it up, put two corn seed here and here, and in between two bean seeds. Bean puts nitrogen into the soil, it feeds the corn which grows up, 
the moisture is kept inside that little planting station and the soil fertility is built up. Every fifth one, what they did was they plant a pumpkin in. Oh, and by the way, oh, I'm pushing the wrong button here. It's my own fault here. The lady on the left is the same lady on the right. On the left here, that's called, what we've done is they've taken lots of foliage and it isn't a beautiful garden like you would have in Edmonton with lots of flowers. What they've done is they've kept all the extra foliage and put it down on the soil. Why? So it rots to build up the quality of the soil, but the second part, it keeps all the moisture in because they don't have a watering hose. It's keeping the moisture in and they're using that where on the right-hand side, all they've got is weeds requiring a whole lot of weeding. And the third part is in between the plants, when you grow the beans or lentils or um, jack beans or whatever, it starts to build up the nitrogen in the soil, but it also provides protein and food for the people, and all of the fodder can be fed to the animals or it can go back into the soil. And what you've got is three basic steps. And all of a sudden, they are getting massive increases in their output. But now all of a sudden, they have a little bit left over to sell. And then they started up these women's savings groups. You know how much they were saving every week? Four cents. Four cents. Four. Four cents. And when 20 women all put four cents in, that's 80 cents. And after five weeks, they had four dollars. And Amoresh borrowed three dollars to start her little trading business, trading coffee beans. And as she paid back her loan, other people took loans. And all of a sudden, eight people had loans. And then they got a goat herd. And then they bought a cow, or a little calf that turned into a cow. And all of a sudden, they had a whole series of little businesses. And her coffee trading business was able to send her daughter to university. In two years, the massive change that had taken place. But the interesting thing is, in the training school for the farmers, they only allowed half of the people to come from the church. The other half had to be neighbors. Invite your Muslim friend. Invite your Orthodox friend. Invite someone who's your neighbor who doesn't go to church at all because we want to bless the community. Well, there were so many church people that wanted to start in Amoresh's church. They ended up having five different training schools of farmers who were all going because they all wanted to bring their neighbors into it. And what happens is the church ends up becoming the catalyst for community change. And what they had so little of, all of a sudden was becoming bountiful. We're seeing a complete change when you have little in your hands that can be moved into something much bigger. My friend Don um, and I sat down as we looked at this scripture passage and the two of us studied together and as we worked together we came up with this list. And whether it's Edmonton or Amoresh's little village just outside of Soto, Ethiopia, less, we want less poverty. What we want is more abundance. And God has that mindset. Instead of doubt, we want to have more faith. Instead of loneliness, we seek community. 
Instead of anger, it's grace. Instead of hate, it's love. Instead of worry, there is peace of heart. Instead of selfishness, generosity. Instead of material, it's something much deeper. It's joy. And instead of busyness, it's quality time. It seems that God wants to have, take us and give us much more. But it's much more than just material. It talks to the issues of the heart. So I want to ask you, what is our response here to this kind of problem? See, if we just look at scripture and look at this nice story, Wayne's told a nice story, we have to respond in some way, shape, or form and say, God, what is my responsibility in this? And I think the first part is we need to examine ourselves, Examine our own, what we have and what we don't, and what does that look like? For me, it, I, when I started studying this passage in the summer, I realized I need to go and share more with my neighbor. See, when I moved into my community, I live in Mississauga, Ontario. When I moved into my community, it was all Caucasian families. And now, the family on this side are Indian, and they have their Diwali lights. And on this side, it's Pakistani, and uh, Samita's husband was killed by the Taliban right in front of her. And the family next door is uh, our uh, Iraqi, who escaped from Saddam's clutches. Behind us, it was the Syrian refugee who applied to be a Canadian citizen and get a visa here 23 years ago and got one in June. And then next door is the Korean and the Filipino. We're the only white family in the community anymore. But how do I cross cultural divides? Well, the interesting thing is I've actually been putting these conservation agriculture techniques into, in my backyard, and I have a little garden that's about this big. And in it, I grow my six tomato plants. And my six little cherry tomato plants this year produced over 2,500 little cherry tomatoes. My wife is sick and tired of cherry tomatoes. <laughs> I have given away more bags of cherry tomatoes, but every one of my neighbors now has my cherry tomatoes. But you know what happened was every one of them invited me in for tea. And every one of them has come into our home for tea. And it opened the door for conversations. And then they start to ask about my wife, what do you do? And my wife used to be on the pastoral staff of two churches. And then they asked, what do I do? And they ask me where I've traveled. And when they realize that I've traveled to their village, their town, all of a sudden doors are open in conversation. And recently Samita says, I'm not ready yet, but I've never been in a Christian church, but will you take me? I want to go at Christmas. See, what we see is, what do you have that you can share with your neighbors? And maybe I suggest it starts with just friendship and a smile. What resources and skills do you have to share in your church, in your community? See, God calls us to engage, just like Elijah and this woman, engaged in a discussion that ended up changing that family. And God also, I believe, asks us to look beyond just Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. It's just like we diversify a portfolio for our RSP, we diversify our giving and our investment into the kingdom of God. Absolutely give to this church. 
Give to the ministries in this community, to the mustard seed or whatever, and give beyond the world, beyond and outside. One of the wonderful things, as I've shared about Ethiopia, we are so far trained about 11,000 farmers, and we will be continuing to do that for the years to come. That's just in three years. Involved about um, 5,000 women's in these savings groups, but the interesting thing is they're sustainable. The whole idea is at Tier Fund, we start the project and our goal is to leave. Our goal is not to stay in any community longer than two years because we want to transfer knowledge into the hands of the church, into the hands of the local community so that they can go and see God change among themselves. Um, just outside, there's a little table there. I'd love to talk to you, but at the back, some of you may want a devotion book of looking at issues of saying, what is justice? What is mercy? Where is God calling us to? It's a little five-week, no, no dates on it, seven days a week, five weeks, of looking at some of the scriptures of what does it mean to go to the other side of the gospel, to love your neighbor as yourself. And they're free, just take them. And uh, love to have it. Let's pray. Loving and faithful Father, uh, we praise you. You are loving, you're merciful. You listen to us, you take interest in us when we're in pain, when we're hurting, when we don't know where to go. You understand our needs even before we state them, and it's your joy to respond. We lift up Amrush, we lift up her family, we lift up that community, we lift up the pastor. And Father, as they reach out to see transformation taking place in their community, as they solve their own needs, Father, would you give them discernment and understanding and wisdom and give them physical and emotional strength. We want to place our gifts, our lives into your hands and ask you to use us for your glory. Heavenly Father, we need you. We can't do it on our own. And we trust you to transform our lives and this church. In Jesus' name, amen.